0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Here we are making our second Second turn turn into the Surrealist flank. As we've already discussed there's a bewilderment around what exactly is the second surrealist manifesto and in fact it's caused me to feel a shadow <laughs> fall over the first one and the whole enterprise seems circled round with clouds and sort of misdirection and there's some rain in the distance and the, this is the first line that I have is Surrealism, comma, although a special part of its function is to examine with a critical eye the notions of reality and unreality, dot, dot, dot. The right. dot, that's dot, the, dot's not that, in it.
1: Yeah, that's the version I have. And yet oh. in French it begins, En dépit des démarches particulières à chacun de ceux qui sont, sont réclamés ou sont réclament. Anyway, that doesn't sound like it means the same thing. (laughs) Exactly what despite the démarches, despite the digressions particularly to each of those that are reclaimed. Anyway, I'm not too good at what I I have to look it up. Sure.
2: (laughs) Mais oui, je ne comprends difference. Je sais quoi. (laughs) I'm going to communicate in nothing but high school French.
0: (laughs) So then okay. uh, and then and then the version that can... I had if I may it Just ends really with doesn't... um into the water and into without water. believing in the phoenix yes. plunging into the fire to reach this truth that's then, how there was and, you know, and then followed in this with you know brackets with ellipses and then uh Breton la révolution surréaliste Of December 15th, Golgi Willikens, 1929. Yeah, 1929,
1: when he was in the Communist Party. I looked him up on uh, Wikipedia uh, last night. And if I remember correctly, he was in the Communist Party from 1927 and then uh, expelled in 1933. So during that rather brief period, he wrote this Second Manifesto, which uh, you can tell if you read it, which I did last night, or at least tried to, is uh, very uh, communist. He's really talking about dialectical materialism, and he's completely accepting uh, the whole Marxist analysis, as I see it.
0: It's super-duper interesting in that light, you know, relative to the move from the first to the second, the degree to which he has, uh, I, you know, seemingly subsumed surrealism within a worker revolutionary movement.
1: Yeah, and yet it's an <laughs> uncomfortable alliance because uh, the uh, first two thirds of the uh, manifesto, the second manifesto, I mean, uh, concerns itself with questions like, uh, where is the great proletarian literature? Uh, is it possible, in fact, to have through proletarian literature, which he says that it isn't because all the all the literature is written by the bourgeoisie, therefore uh, it's an impossibility to to, uh, to have, according to him, to have uh, actual um, real writings by workers. but, Then suddenly he slips into the surrealist part of the manifesto, which seems really, as far as I can tell, to have pretty much nothing to do with the revolution.
0: It does seem that he's trying to deal with something that you'd brought up in our first session, which is the innate solipsism of Uh surrealism. And that seems to be what these two numbered questions are seeking to address. Mm. Yeah. And as you point out, he does say, no one can fairly claim any real kinship with the proletarian culture, which in this version is underlined, FYI, for the very excellent reason that this culture, again underlined, does not yet exist, even under (laughs) proletarian (laughs) regimes. It's like a dream. (laughs)
1: Of course, the revolution has occurred in Russia and nowhere else at this point. I think maybe 1917 is the beginning of the revolution. By 1919, maybe it's finished. And this is all the way up to 1929. So it's like 10 years after the revolution. And yet, I guess, um, so the revolution's new. It's exciting. It's going to change the world. But it's so new that no one knows quite what it is yet. I mean, that's sort of, and, you know, the early part of the Soviet Revolution was really avant-garde. The art was avant-garde. The avant-gardists got kind of launched into orbit. Mayakovsky was writing these insane poems, you know, and he was like a kind of uh, official uh, poet of uh, the Soviet Union.
0: Yeah, yeah. and Malevich
2: um, also. Right, basically, those visual uh, artists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did either of you get a sense of a connection between the solipsism or the inner work of surrealism, especially vis-a-vis dreams and the techniques of automatic writing, and um, the social changes that a Marxist would want to see, the socio-political revolution and transformation? It doesn't seem as if he moves from the internal to the
0: external one thing that he's doing is and in a way in which there is some basis for making a linkage is this term historical materialism Mm -hmm. and the idea that the production that the products of our dreams as, as Sparrow pointed out in our last podcast, I think, you know, this sort of idea of the means of production of consciousness of internal images is, is material that is can have a collective mm-hmm. attitude that we all have these manifestations, dream manifestations And the articulation of them by seemingly what he calls like uh, and he seems to be referring to Freud in this case, sort of the gifted ones or some sort of uh, those who have like the capacity. Oh, yeah. In the Freudian sense, the precious faculty. Oh, yeah. Who possess in the Freudian sense, precious faculty that that that's those dreams are coincident with widgets and sprockets and <laughs> steam engines and you know all these other hmm. materials that human beings can produce. Whereas John B. Sebastian said, rocket ships and wheels that sing.
1: Well I mean in in fact, you know, my opinion about what your question, Andrew, is that in in fact the the manifest, the second manifesto moves in the opposite direction from the external to the internal he begins talking about you know kind of exterior revolution and ends up talking about really what i would call a practice you know he's you know i'm i find myself thinking like what is surrealism it it doesn't seem like an art movement i don't think andre breton is thinking i'm starting an art movement you know he says you know as as um, sam just quoted la revolution surrealiste. he's starting a revolution not a movement you know it's not like uh, cubism it's not a it's not another it's not impressionism it's a something it's a whole new way of looking at everything and that that is revolutionary
2: and yeah, i would yeah, that uh, and, and, call well, to, to wake hmm. up there's,
1: there's,
2: to waking up there's this call for Awareness, basic awareness, new awareness. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, is,
0: and I um, guess in the first paragraph, you know, to put an end to idealism, mm, properly yes, speaking.
1: Yes. Yeah, he hates Hegel. Uh, you know, he's saying I'm with the uh, I'm with the Marxists because we both hate Hegel, and Hegel is this idea of the idea. In fact, the one Hegelian book I ever read, my friend Fred gave me because uh, he was a philosopher, it's called the, what is it called? The idea in history, reason in history. It's all about the idea with a capital I, how it's manifested in history. This is what Hegel seemed to think, that there's some kind of big idea, like Napoleon is a manifestation of an idea, and that that ideas, these capital I ideas, are what motivate history. So Marx studied Hegel, and then he said, Hegel's right about the dialectic. He's wrong about idealism. It's not ideals; it's materials that that shape people. You know, uh-huh. he just kind of turned Hegel on his head.
0: Yeah, because he brings up this guy Feuerbach. Yes,
1: Feuerbach, maybe.
0: Yeah, and you know his his part the, the concise sort of statement of Feuerbach's position relative to Hegel is this, and this is you know. In the consciousness of the infinite, the conscious subject, that is the human being, has for his object the infinity of his own nature. Wow. So these, these ideals that Hegel posits as being external and related to the construction of God, mm. to which we may aspire... uh furbach is saying no all those kinds of ideals are products of our own consciousness products of our own imagination and that it's actually a completely open field that the infinitude of our nature that god and also i mean it's a sort of basic idea that god is within
1: although uh Uh, You know, according to Wikipedia, Breton's father was an atheist and Breton was an atheist. He was a lifetime atheist, apparently, who was like deeply who became more and more obsessed with uh, mysticism. And I guess what I would call the occult, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of the elements of mysticism that lean more towards uh, uh, actually uh, changing the world, you know, uh, magic kind of you know things more you know he ended up in Haiti studying voodoo how do you say it you're supposed to say red tom was in haiti well, like... was in haiti yeah and he was like it's... totally into uh I don't
0: know. My daughter
1: was telling me how to say this, but I forgot.
0: I think it's like the Tetra You're not actually supposed to say it. <laughs> yeah,
1: certainly I'm not
0: supposed to say it.
1: So, and Mexico. He ended up in Mexico hanging out with Trotsky, but also kind of, you know, uh, appreciating Mexico. Breton was a fanatical collector of objects, a brilliant collector, according to Claude levi strauss You know, he was just great at authenticating uh, sort of ethnographic um, uh, tribal artifacts and all sorts of artifacts. He had a massive collection that he wanted to make into a big surrealist museum, but it fell through and then they ended up selling them. But there's a wall of his apartment that's at the Pompidou. That's like the only remains of his collection, you know, as a public entity. So, I mean, he went around looking for things, looking for beautiful objects that also had maybe kind of mystical connotations. And also with for cultures, I think. You know, he had this kind of hunger for a kind of a culture that, that had this kind of a connection to the unconscious that he was looking for. His work is really an attack on the Western mind. I mean, that's kind of how I see it.
2: He was, he was in mysticism because of... Um... What, the breakdown of the ego, of, of tapping into some deeper consciousness?
1: I mean, I think that maybe he started out, I mean, automatic writing was done originally by psychics, that's my understanding. 19th century psychics did this automatic writing, you know, to channel higher beings or dead ancestors or something. And uh, and then uh, Breton stole it. And I think if you do it long enough, you you, you kind of fall backwards into the inner parts of your mind, and you get more and more kind of aware of some inner levels, you know? I mean, I'm just guessing.
2: Yeah, along those lines, Bertrand does write here here in this uh, second edition of the manifesto about using these techniques to be projected into immortality. Oh, yeah? Yeah, toward the Mm -hmm. end.
0: Now, let's hold just for a sec there. Because I believe that we just found a fault line in terms of being on the same page. pages at the same times. In that what I'm looking at, Andrew, doesn't have that.
1: No, it does. What? Yeah, yeah, because I'm reading the same one you have. If you look at that big last paragraph, uh, I don't know where to tell you to look, but there's a, I'll, I'll read it to you. Surrealism has done everything it can and more to increase these short circuits. Yes, I, I'll discuss that right. later. It believes, and it will never believe in anything more wholeheartedly, in reproducing artificially this ideal moment when man, in the grip of a particular emotion, is suddenly seized by this something stronger than himself, which projects him in self-defense, into immortality. If he were
0: lucid, awake, he would be terrified as he wriggled out of this tight situation. (laughs) What a statement. Uh, The whole point for him is
2: not to be free of it. For him to go on talking the entire time, this mysterious ringing lasts. It is, in Mm -hmm. fact, the point at which he ceases to belong to himself, that he belongs to us.
0: Right. Which seems to circle back to this idea that by going through all the bottoms of all the boxes of consciousness, that you wound up with this div consonant material that binds all of us and that the absolute pursuit of this kind of solipsistic path will result in this residue that belongs to all of us and that binds all of us together.
2: No, it just reminds me in some ways, I I don't know why he keeps coming up, but it does remind me of some of the theoretical work of Carl Jung, who who did believe that we, we, we move through our conscious mind our personal unconscious mind, and beneath that is the um, stratum that he referred to as the collective unconscious. Um, right. And through talk therapy, through art, primarily, we, we through dream work, singularly. Yeah. We can um, we can determine what structures. Uh, emerge out of the collective unconscious, and they will be de facto familiar to others because um, there is this universal quality to the collective unconscious. And, and it want-
0: does seem to be that this is where you get the reconciliation and where it can fit in within the, you know, let's be frank, Marxist revolution.
1: How, how do you mean?
0: In other words, that surrealism by... Taking control of the means of hmm. production of dreams and of the unconscious taboo hedged realms of our experience can produce a body of material that all of us reflect and that hold us together. Hmm. In the revolution,
1: yeah, and also I think it's important to remember that the Russian revolution. First of all, the first thought I had when when Andrew was asking, well, how does this fit in with the revolution? Is like, remember, this is ten years after the Russian revolution, so you know, part the Russian revolution was a really a spontaneous action. It had a kind of spontaneity, like um, uh, like the dream work, like the surrealist art has. You know, it was something that just suddenly kind of had to happen. Of course, it was, in fact, manipulated by a small cadre of Bolsheviks. But it's uh, still, as an event, it was this kind of blossoming. And and I think that this, uh, you know, communism still felt like a very unformed project that could become anything like, like uh, surrealist art. I mean, I think it didn't. And then in 1933, he's kicked out of the Communist Party. Why? Maybe the accession of uh, Stalin, you know, and the fact that communism is becoming something much more concrete, formalized. You know, it's, it's a mammoth uh, sort of uh, like a dictatorship, really.
0: <laughs> and became that which, you know, we got in the first couple sentences, colossal abortion, <laughs> it became a...
1: Where is that, the colossal abortion? Oh, I see it, yeah.
0: Yeah, there are two points of departure. You know, that phrase occurs twice. And one is this colossal abortion of the Hegelian system. Mm-hmm. And then the second point of departure, uh, such that for us, philosophy is outclassed, which in this version I have is in quotation marks. Mm, philosophy is outclassed. That's a great line. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) By surrealism? By, I guess, the idea that there is no, uh, that idealism is dead and that God is a projection.
1: Mm. And that's another thought that I had uh, about your question, Andrew, is that uh, in the same way that the revolutionary uh, strikes against the state, the bourgeois state and the ruling class, the surrealist uh, strikes against the superego Uh, The part of your mind that tells you, uh, don't mess around with dreams, that's pointless, that's a waste of time, you know, there's like the whole editor in you, uh, you know, like, like the, and then eventually, according to Wikipedia, um, his final uh, stance politically, because I think he lived till 1966, Breton, pretty late. He uh, was ultimately an anarchist, you know, kind of a mark, Sound like sort of a Marxist anarchist. So, you know, we're, we're in a, where you're kind of against all authority. So it's kind of like, you know, the fight against the the inner and the outer authority are kind of the same thing in a way. Although I think a lot of this was just sort of, what's the word, intuitive with him. You know, it doesn't seem... In this manifesto, that he's really connecting them. That you know, we have to do it for him.
0: <laughs> right to right. leave it incomplete, incomplete to include the viewer, the listener, reader. Hmm. Um, yeah, which goes become... back to Schlegel actually in German Romanticism. Huh. Yeah, that a responsible work of art is incomplete, hmm. so that it has a a gap through which to grow.
1: Hmm. You know, it's funny because I was thinking like. One thing that I love about surrealism is I feel that Breton found a way to uh, transcend a romanticism because I don't like I just personally don't like romanticism. and And I feel that hmm, Breton sort of invented a romanticism without romanticism, without an obsession with beauty, for example without a certain kind of, I don't know, idealization of the great genius poet, you know, or the or the genius artist. I don't know. You know, with, right. I just feel like romanticism is too romantic. Yeah, <laughs> or the
0: whole idea of the
1: sublime.
0: Huh? The sublime.
1: Yes, the sublime, right. I don't like the sublime.
0: Yeah, I, I hear you, brother. That's, this is a really good point. I think, you know, one point where my reading sort of pricked up is when he's talking about inspiration this is shortly following his talk of the precious faculty Hmm. and that that's kind of uh, would be interesting to investigate also
2: can you read it aloud the moment inspiration is evoked
1: oh yeah here it is
2: yeah surrealism
1: demands that however confident they are of its extraordinary virtue They dream only of making it shed its final ties or even something no one had ever dared conceive of, of making it submit to them. That's hard to explain.
0: Surrealism, basically. Now, you know, let's really get down to the ground, you know, where the pickaxe can't get, you know, this this is as far as we can get. Surrealism basically asks people... To bring to the accomplishment of their mission a new awareness. To perform an act of self-observation, which mm-hmm. in their case is of very exceptional value. To compensate for what is insufficient about the penetration of so-called artistic states of mind by men who are, are not artists but doctors. And then it goes on. Surrealism demands that by taking a path opposite from the one we have just seen them follow, those who possess, in the Freudian sense, the precious faculty we are referring to, bend their efforts towards studying in this light the most complex mechanism of all, inspiration. And from that moment, they they cease thinking of it as something sacred.
2: There's a lot there, I mean, um... Wow, I'm really intrigued by the dichotomy between the artist and the doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I, th- mm-hmm. I think I- he's talking about Freud and Freud's
1: disciples.
2: Oh, I, I thought he was referring to the um, popular artists of his day as doctors. What, can we, let's take a look at that. So, <laughs> where, where is that exactly? Well, he,
0: well I mean, Spiro's right in that it does it's follow, not you not know, a Freudian concept, which affects the greater part of their concerns as men. The concern to create, to destroy artistically. I mean the definition of the ph- phenomena known as sublimation.
1: Yeah, because that's a Freudian concept, the concept of sublimation. We, you know, because Freud had a kind of uh, fascination for artists. This is like a personal narcissistic theory of mine that almost every therapist, except with one exception, that I've ever gone to has some kind of weird appreciation of me, like an over-appreciation of me, I think because they consider me an artist, and because Freud said that artists are the only ones they don't, um, what's the word, repress, they sublimate their inner uh, conflicts, you know, instead of uh, we, I guess, should say, since the three of us are artists, you know, uh, instead of just pushing him down and saying, no, 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 I can't think about my lust for my mother. They write a play about a guy who's got a girlfriend who's older than him, and the two of them are blissfully happy. He sublimates his uh, forbidden urge. Everyone else just like, oh, my God, I can't think like that. The artist is like, hey, I've got a great idea for a play.
2: Yeah, and yes. Freud wrote this, this book that's considered the first psychobiography. It, it was on Leonardo da Vinci. It's called uh-huh. Leonardo da Vinci and a Memory of His... And in that work, Freud develops his um, concept of sublimation. Very much in line with what you're saying, Sparrow, that, um, that Leonardo da Vinci had all sorts of um, unorthodox libidinal desires as a, as a child, uh, no surprise there, that were um, sublimated into artistic forms and into scientists, that the regressive energies of his first few years were sublimated into the progressive solutions of artistic and scientific work.
1: Right, I'm not gonna have sex with little boys, I'm going to make a flying machine, you know? Like, <laughs> <Yes>. like that <laughs> <Sunshine laughs> works, you know?
2: <laughs> not this everyone could memory, do it. Memory of, from childhood of a vulture landing close to where he was um, taking a nap turning huh. around and putting its tail feathers into his mouth. Huh. And that that's the uh, the childhood memory that Freud begins with in his uh, his work on sublimation in that text.
1: Huh. And that leads to his artistic development somehow. And
2: that that generates artistic and, and scientific innovation and genius. Huh. There's a therapeutic dimension that the artist is able to be an alchemist, a psychic alchemist.
1: Right. right?
2: Taking... the uh, yeah, you know, the neurotic tangles and and transforming them into uh, works of art. Yeah,
1: it it does. You do sort of feel when you think about like pedophiles and people that you know practice forbidden lusts, that they do seem in general to be people with no imagination. You know, people that can't think of another way around it. You know, a way to sort of to do it in in code and symbolism. You know, they have to actually have a seven year old kid in front of them instead of you know, painting a painting or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What I also wanted to point out in relation to that text and to this idea of inspiration is that he actually does not submit the, the source of inspiration. He just uh, articulates that it manifests and then writes, we all know well enough what inspiration is. Interesting. I mean, it's a little bit like, was it Miles Davis who said, if you need to ask what jazz is, you'll never know.
2: <laughs>
0: there is no way of mistaking it. It is what has provided for the supreme needs of expression in every time and clime. It is commonly said that it is either present or it is not. And if it is absent, nothing of what, by way of comparison, is suggested by the human cleverness that interests discursive intelligence and the talent acquired by dint of hard work obliterate can make up for it. Yeah, You know what it
1: reminds me of is I was uh, after I flunked out of Cornell, I, uh, I spent like the next semester hanging around, living with my friends off campus and I somehow became friends with the, some guy in the English department at Cornell, this is 1973, and he uh, showed me his office, and in his, as we're walking into his office, we walk through the office of another English professor, and the guy is sitting at a desk with a piece of paper, and my friend said to me, he's working on a poem. And I something about that, this guy working on the poem like you would do, uh, like you'd work on a crossword puzzle, He's working on the poem. It just struck me as absurd. You know, like this is why I don't want to be in this goddamn place where people work on poems. And I, that's exactly what I, I hear him saying here. Like all your cleverness, uh, discursive intelligence, talent, hard work, forget it. You know, that's not, not going to get up. You're not going to end up with a poem. You'll end up with something, a written work full of intelligence and, you know, skill but that's not a poem you know i think that's i see that as what breton is saying but it turns out there is a secret way to do it inspiration can be manufactured by creating this short circuit that's a, to me this is the key uh, concept in this right uh, right in this uh, whole manifesto and uh, you know just as in the physical world a short circuit occurs when the two poles of a machine are joined By a conductor of little or no resistance in poetry and in painting, surrealism has done everything it can and more to increase these short circuits. So it's somehow, I mean, you know, he explains it, the sentence before that, but it's pretty hard to to explain. Well, let me just try to read it and see if it makes any sense. We can easily recognize it by that total possession of our mind, which at rare intervals, prevents our being for every problem posed the plaything of one rational solution rather than some other equally rational solution by that sort of short circuit it creates between a given idea and a respondent idea. So in other words, uh, you're trying to th- solve some problem, like how can I fly? How can I get people to fly? Cause my wife has listened to some book on, uh, tape or whatever they call it now, audio book about the Wright brothers. So, uh, and, and since we're talking about Leonardo da Vinci, who also did this, you know, like you're thinking, 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 can you get a person to fly? You Think of every rational solution you can, you get nowhere. And then suddenly you go to sleep, you have a dream, you know, like the periodic table came to some, you know, chemist in a dream. Suddenly you have a dream and you see a guy with these two wings on his arms and it's like, I've got it the inspiration came directly to me not through a, a elaborate labyrinthine rational process and uh, and uh, breton says yes we can do that we can short circuit the mind go st- tap into directly that source where all the great ideas come from
0: yeah and that's a real and I guess also it recalls also a little bit like Occam's razor this idea of the shortest path between two mm. ideas being the best you know mm. this short circuit mm. and also of the value or that the that which one de- best derives from a work of art has not to do with an arrival at a meeting or an idea or a concept, but has to do with the motion, has to do with that short circuit. Mm. Mm. Mm.
2: I, I mm. remember um, working for John Strugnell, the Welshman, who was one of the scholars, biblical scholars, who published on the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he had uh, a few of the scrolls in his apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I was a graduate student assistant. And he told me offhandedly on on one occasion that he uh, he dreamt of a translation of a very difficult moment in the of the uh, papyri that um, grammarians, uh, his uh, biblical scholar friends, couldn't figure it out, and hmm. the, the translation came to him in the way of a dream, and it, it checked out. It ended up um, offering the uh, the. the the most likely translation for this challenging moment of text. And he he didn't know where it came from, but but it came through the dream state in in, in a way that was irrefutable. I have a question about the end, uh, allusion to the curious figure of the phoenix. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's
1: That's interesting.
2: And I'm just going to read the final sentence before that closing. Hmm. We will then be surprised to realize that having come so close to seizing the truth, most of us have been careful to provide ourselves with an alibi, be it literary or any other, rather than throwing ourselves without knowing how to swim into the water and without believing in the phoenix, plunging into the fire to reach this truth. It's, uh, right, it's a bird that regenerates from its own ashes after being consumed by flame, that there's some sort of transformation, right? Isn't that how the, the phoenix yeah. is? I think it's I think it's eternal the phoenix. I think like every
1: so often. I think it happens in the Harry Potter books that the the phoenix. Uh, you know, I think Professor Dumbledore has a phoenix like uh, in his office, and I think one day it's like, oh, it just burst into flame because it's 500 years old. It lives some X number of years, then bursts into flames. Then the new baby phoenix is born from the from the uh, ashes of the dead phoenix. But it's, I think, the same phoenix in my mind. It's, it's an eternal, you know, it's the myth of the eternal return. It returns, it dies, and is reborn, but it's still the same. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, oh. yeah.
0: So it's got like a reincarnation or metapsychosis thing to it. Mm. But also, as you pointed out, Sparrow Breton, in the end, fell back or, or, you know, came to sort of an alchemical and mystical attitude toward what is art.
2: What do you make of without believing in the phoenix? Is, is he suggesting that um, the surrealists shouldn't have an expectation that there's going to be some, some great rebirth or something generated from this? Um- no, I think what he's saying, I mean, you know,
1: of course, we're not reading the original, you know. But uh, it's kind of a weird translation, but I think he's saying, even though we don't believe in the phoenix, we ourselves are plunging into the fire, you know, uh, in the same way.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, that's how I read the grammar of that sentence. It's not very clear, but.
0: Well, how I would have read it is that you plunge into the fire that which will destroy you, that which was gonna burn you up without hope. In other words, you don't have this idea, oh, I'm a phoenix, I'm gonna plunge into the fire, no worries, I'm gonna be reconstituted and mm-hmm. emerge new and you know ready to go.
2: I thought along those lines that it was uh, a reflection on some of the Freudian critique that he offers, that the artist is not a doctor. But this is this is not you know this is not going to bring a, about some sort of therapeutic transformation of energies that that um, you're not going to go down into the uh, the unconscious and figure some stuff out and emerge with fewer neuroses. There's going to be no rebirth of self of personality as Freud promises. As a doctor, as someone who dedicated himself to healing people by going or encouraging them to go in and then to emerge with new knowledge. like yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's really a good point that, you know, because I'm always reading Freud and I just read that uh, case history of Dora. Uh, it's true, like Freud sort of, if you want to accept this, discovered the unconscious. But his, uh, you know, and he's fascinated by the unconscious, almost kind of worships the unconscious in a way, Freud But and yet he was, you know, in his crazy mind, he's always a scientist and he's always using it to some purpose, to some end. The unconscious, like its purpose is to make people normal again, (laughs) to make them not weird. So uh, whereas Breton is like, hey, I love this unconscious, but I don't want to use it for some purpose. I don't want to have an I-it relationship to the uh, to the unconscious.
2: Yeah, I have a friend who I haven't talked to spoken to in a number of years, who was a translator of André Breton. In fact, he won some award, the Penn Translation Award, for the book that he published. I think it was André Breton. And his name is Bill Zavatsky.
1: Oh yeah, I know him. I mean, yeah. I know him kind of.
2: Yeah, Bill Zavatsky. We worked together at Trinity for many years, and you know, um, we stayed in touch um, up until recently, up until the pandemic. But he was making the same point to me on one occasion that you just made, Sparrow, that Andre Breton was outspoken increasingly about his belief, contra Freud, that the objective of surrealism was to create art, was to make discoveries, but there wasn't necessarily going to be this therapeutic piece, whether um, for the entire culture vis-a-vis Marxist revolution or for the individual seeking healing through um, dream work, through unconscious excavation, this
1: sort of thing. But, but he, but he doesn't seem to believe in some kind of a social revolution.
2: Bill Zavatsky, unless I'm misremembering, was suggesting, maybe this is why he was kicked out of the Communist Party, huh. that, that it, it it became less and less about some outcome, some telos. I see, yeah, I see what you mean. Mm -hmm. Whether personal or social. I mean,
1: the way I see it is like Breton is is saying, look, I figured out how to make this short circuit, how to go directly into this level of inspiration. And I want to say, I guess parenthetically, that um, it really worked. I mean, you look at the surrealist artists, the, you know, immense uh, variety and, fecundity of the surrealist art movement, you know, which produced, uh, you know, Moreau. uh, There was a retrospective of Giacometti recently at the uh, Guggenheim Museum, and uh, Giacometti was kind of a mediocre artist. He goes through this uh, surrealist period making lousy, corny, surrealist sculptures, and then suddenly he breaks through and becomes Giacometti right after that. You know, it was like, like surrealism was like a school he went through that sort of taught him how to see inside himself. That's how it looks, you know? So, I mean, I I think that, um, that it really does work this, this short circuit, but I remember my point, the way you do it, the only way that you can really pursue this method is without thinking of the outcome, without thinking I'm going to make a work of art. You think you just dive into the water, you dive into the fire just to dive, you know, just for the whatever, the splash of it, you know.
0: Right. Right. You know, remembering uh, Dr. Williams, if it's not a pleasure, it's not a poem.
1: (laughs) It's funny because when I was like looking for texts about um, surrealism, I was drawn to uh, the book Patterson, to William Carlos Williams. Um, you know, book-length uh, poem about uh, the the city of Patterson. And maybe I'll read this, okay? Uh, you know, because you don't think of uh, Williams as a surrealist poet, but I think there is a lot of surrealism in him. And I was just drawn to this section, which I don't know why. One kills for money, but doesn't always get it. Leans on the parapet, thinking, while the preacher, outnumbered, addresses the leaves in the patient trees. The gentle Christ, child of Pericles, and femina Practa, split between Athens and the Amphioxus. The gentle Christ, weed and worth, wistfully forthright, weeps and is remembered as of the open tomb, threw it away with both hands until it was gone. That's from yeah it's just like you know page 72. I just opened to it at random and but I just something about it had a certain energy. so I, uh, I so in other words, what's happening, I think, well, it's more, a little more clear if you look at the pagination, you know the way it looks on the page. He seems to be in a church hearing a preacher preach. And so a lot of what I read, the part about Christ is the uh, is this seems to be the sermon of the priest.
2: I don't know Patterson very well. I, I, I've never read it.
1: Yeah, I think people don't read it. I mean, who reads it? It's unreadable. I read it once, you know, back when I was like very devoted to being some kind of hip poet, and you know, I read it and uh, and I it has all. It's a weird, crazy book. You know, it's kind of based on uh, Ezra Pound's Cantos, or it's he's sort of doing something that Olson is doing, but I think maybe before Olson. You know, he's he's finding out everything about this city of Patterson. He's he's actually from this town, of, I think it's called North Rutherford. He's from a little sort of suburb of Patterson. Because I've been to his house, stood outside his house, Williams's house. But anyway, but Patterson was the nearby city. And so he writes, it's kind of a history, it's kind of a surrealist history of Patterson. So some of it is like documentary, uh... You know, quotes or whatever there were documents from Alexander Hamilton, who was very involved in the founding of Patterson and creating this factory that was on the falls, powered by the falls of whatever river it is in Patterson. But, um, so, very good. But, uh, what I, you know, when I read it, I would just kind of read through it, try to understand it, and then the. Prose passages that were kind of historical were kind of a relief because then I would, those I could actually understand. But now I should read it now that I'm old and you know understand poetry.
2: <laughs> when and was I, I, Rick Williams was both an artist and a doctor? Was he an artist, visual artist? Oh, oh I mean, a poet and a doctor.
1: Oh, oh, I see what you mean. That's yes.
2: really good. Yeah, <laughs> returning to the Breton for a moment. Yeah. <laughs>
1: He transcended the dichotomy of uh, Breton. He did transcend the dichotomy. So, and he was a real doctor. It's in his I mean, You know what I mean? Like, He's a pediatrician, right? A pediatrician yeah. who made house calls. Right, yeah, for like $5 or something. And his, yeah, his son did the same thing. His
2: son took over his practice.
1: Yeah, that's what somebody, I met somebody on the street in front of the house, Williams's house. I don't know how this happened. I was there with my wife. She was writing a little essay about West Rutherford, North Rutherford for the newspaper. She had a job where we would go visit little towns in New Jersey when we lived in New Jersey, and she'd write them up for the uh, Bergen record, I think. Anyway, what is my point? Oh, yeah, so someone told us that's why William's house is not a national landmark, because his son moved into it and renovated it and ruined its historical accuracy,
0: uh-huh. and,
1: and that you know that's why it's not uh, official. It's just a house. Pretty big house, though.
0: Yeah, I think what you had mentioned, Sparrow and um, Andrew, based on your kind of going to the end of this kind of it doesn't this this manifesto doesn't strike me very manifestoy per se, <laughs> except you know, is it sort of links up to the international and you know the socialist movement is this idea of um you know where you just plunge in that you're not driven by some teleology as you would say andrew but you know you're just doing it for its own sake uh that you're enacting and that you're in the flow in you know literally the rhythm of it and that that sort of seems to me like the takeaway that we can use from this, per se, to be teleological. Um, because it is true that as soon as you think about what you're doing, you divide yourself. You become dialectical. You mm-hmm. become judgmental. You become reflective. And then that breaks the dream that shatters that... Yeah absorption it's You're like not it's allowing your mind to catch up with your body
2: can i ask a question about intellectual history yeah of and course i what do you know about the, um, the the frankfurt school because i do know that in the frankfurt school there was an attempt to bring freud marx and hegel into conversation is that a doorno? Is he the uh, Frankfurt School? Yeah, he was part of the uh, Frankfurt School, I'm pretty sure. But I, I have a very shaky, perhaps non-existent grasp on the Frankfurt School. But I know there was an attempt to bring Freudian criticism in particular into Marxism. And I'm just I'm just suddenly wondering in an open-ended sort of wow. way if Andre Breton was, yeah, I'm assuming he was aware of this, I think the Frankfurt School begin in the early nineteen twenties. Who you yeah, know, the I'm, other I'm sort of people.
0: sensing a session beginning to kick up. Like yeah, that's maybe what I'm we should too. yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, I mean obviously, you know, we should try to talk as much as possible about that which we don't understand. It's true.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, I I got to admit that I'm like very influenced by my daughter. You know, she's getting a Ph.D. in uh, comparative literature at NYU, and she's kind of a real intellectual. And she lately was telling me how much she hates Adorno. I don't know why. You know, she is in a Marxist study group. So maybe she somehow considers Adorno not Marxist enough or somehow weak in his thinking. But, um, you know, I shouldn't let myself be entirely prejudiced by a 29-year-old person that is my kid, you know? I should find yeah, out yeah. for myself.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, Adorno's usually, his, you know, tag is this idea of, you know, you there is no poetry after the Holocaust, Oh. Right, so we should perhaps find that essay, and mm. that would be a good place for us to penetrate the oh. Hannah uh, for the Hamburg School, which <laughs> no, Frank, the, the Frankfurt School. <laughs> it's funny
1: because Frankfurt created the Frankfurter and Hamburg created the Hamburg, and uh, <laughs> so it's easy to get them mixed up.
2: Frankfurt School is one of those uh, phrases that was batted around throughout graduate school whenever anyone would bring it up. I had no idea what they were talking about. I felt yeah. too embarrassed to ask, which is- It's, bit- like,
1: uh, it's like neoliberalism. <laughs> it's like everyone is against, neo- really pretty much everyone is against neoliberalism. Anyone who's ever heard of it, but exactly what it is, I have a feeling it's possible nobody at all
2: knows. No one can really define it. Yeah, it's interesting, right?
1: Yeah. It's like it sounds really bad, neoliberalism, and it's anything you don't like, you can attribute to it. Hillary Clinton, she's a neoliberal, let's face it whatever
0: that is.
2: Yeah, the Upper West Side would be fine, but it's just full neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> that is, <history> actually. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I do think neoliberalism is based on a set of ideals mm. and is Hegelian and is tied up with this idea of the end of history, actually. Or is that
1: neoconservatism? Huh, I thought that it was that guy who was uh, the end of history dude Is a, is considered a neoconservative. I mean, I could be wrong. I feel like I understand neoconservatism because um, George W. Bush enacted it so clearly. You know, it's like neoconservatives—you just like uh, uh, what's the word? Invade any country you want, and you're bringing them democracy. That's uh, neoconservatism, as I understand it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it, it goes back to these lectures that were given in France in the 30s by Strauss, a German. What? A Strauss, Strauss? He, he set up the University of Chicago yeah. as a incubator for this line of thought that I think also is tied up with neoliberalism, actually. Hayek, it was this series of lectures that a guy named Hayek gave in Paris, I think it was in the 30s, oh. and um, yeah, Leo Strauss packed up his bag there and brought it to Chicago.
1: And then they became Straussians. I get the Straussians right. mixed up with the Frankfurt School. I got to confess. When you said Frankfurt School, I was like, wait a second, are those Straussians?
2: Well, let's learn a little about the Frankfurt School and each choose a paragraph maybe from one text.
1: Or maybe a very uh, neo, neoliberal, no, a very Frankfurt School poem. You know, if you can find a whatever, short work by Hawthorne, I'm reading Hawthorne at the moment. I have a feeling there might be some Frankfurt School uh, emanations in Uh, Rappaccini's Daughter. I'm reading Rappaccini's Daughter.
0: Yeah, this is all very terrifying. So, you know, I think we should um, do that and see if we can, um, how does uh, Breton say, see if we can wiggle out of that, of the tight situation that the Frankfurt School is gonna put us into.
1: Well, I mean, I do have something I want to read. It's in French, oh, good. but oh, good. I, oh even I, better, uh, you know, can translate it perfectly for you. Don't worry. Okay. It's from this book I have called uh, Manifeste du Surrealisme. You know, it's uh, this uh, Andre Breton book, and it's a whole book full of apparently manifestos of surrealism. And I open to this one Secret de l'Art Magique Surrealiste. Secrets of the Magic Art of Surrealism." So, and it really gives you a technique, which uh, seems very clear to me. Placez-vous dans l'état le plus passif ou réceptif que vous pourrez. Place yourself in the state the most passive or receptive that you can. Faites abstraction de votre génie, de vos talents, et de ceux de tous les autres. Uh, just abstract yourself from your intelligence, from your genius, from your talents, and also from those of everyone else. So just leave them behind, all that part of your mind, as I understand it. Dites-vous bien que la littérature est un des plus chemins que mène à tout. Tell yourself that literature is one of the saddest paths that you can choose. Or maybe there's the saddest path that leads to everything. That's the part I'm not clear on. Écrivez vite sans sujet préconçu, assez vite pour ne pas retenir et ne pas être tenté de vous relire. Write quickly, without any preconceived subject so fast that you can't remember anything and that you're not tempted to re- re- re-read anything. La première phrase viendra tout seul, tant il est vrai qu'à chaque seconde il est une phrase étrangère à notre pensée consciente qui ne demande qu'à s'extérioriser. The first phrase will come all along, uh, because it's true that at every second, there's one new phrase in your mind that only wants to emerge. I'm going to stop there. I'm like almost at the limits of my uh, whatever. And like each sentence gets a little trickier
0: than the last to uh, follow.
2: Well, well done, Sarah. Yeah. Well done. Yeah,
0: I know, I feel like... You I hit, like, know. your three-minute limit. Yeah, I don't want
1: to, you know, I don't want to monopolize this broadcast with my... Oh, no,
0: it's not that. It's just you speak. always say about your understanding of Judaism that you can say, you know, one or two things, <laughs> you know, you can say something for about three minutes, and then, you know, the cliff is quickly uh, underfoot. And
1: French is, like my Judaism, a little limité
2: the version that we read for today from 1929. I like, but I think I preferred the one from 1924. What we read for today, it seems as if he's pushing it into a, he's thinking into a uh, political container. Like, I I don't know enough about him to say, but it seems as if he's trying to be revolutionary in a way that um, contradicts some of the content of the earlier edition, but I, I would need to think through that.
0: Well, I think, in you know, at the back of it, which I didn't mention, I feel as though Breton, in part, is seeking to, you know, get into a tangle with Plato uh-huh. uh, relative yeah. to the expulsion of the poet from the Republic. Uh-huh. In You know, in that perhaps in Breton's mind is this idea that not kings should become philosophers and philosophers kings but that poets should run society that the subconscious and the means of production of our our images and dreams and you know these both should be the rulers of our human uh, blah 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 you know and going back to i guess you know it's commonly ascribed to like being witch doctors well
2: i think that's precise i think that's yeah. a
0: piece of the
2: that i think that's a salient piece of the frankfurt school i think we're going to discover that really um, right yeah yeah that that personal work that personal psychoanalytic liberation needs to occur in order for um, people and an entire society to be free or unfettered from the past unfettered from capitalism that it's as much internal as it is external, the revolution.
1: And also Wilhelm Reich comes to mind as a guy who uh, tried to bring together uh, Freud and Marx and um, and also kind of uh, veered into a kind of mysticism like uh, Breton seemed to.
2: Did, didn't Reich have the uh, orgasm machine? Orgon.
0: <laughs> the orgone box.
2: Yeah, William Burroughs I mean, was very intrigued. yeah. <laughs> He writes about the,
1: or, orgon, the or-, or. It's O-R-G-O-N-E, orgone. The orgone box. Okay. Yeah. And orgone is like a kind, it's like prana, I think, like this idea that there's this kind of mystical energy that's everywhere, that's kind of in the air, and uh, it can be, it's an orgone accumulator. So it's there's this like mystical power in the air, which has a kind of sexual element to it. And you sit in your organ box, which is like a pretty small box, almost like a telephone booth lined with tin, I think, copper, something like that. I was in one in the Whitney Museum once.
0: I did want to point out that Breton <laughs> is uh, proposing a key capable of opening indefinitely that box of many bottoms called man. That's it. There, there it is. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.